Uh, good evening and welcome to Conway Hall and the Conway Memorial Lecture for 2014. Uh, my, my name is Liz Lutendorf and I'm the Chair of the Trustees of uh, Conway Hall Ethical Society. Uh, as usual with lectures, can I ask that everyone's phones are turned to silent, but please feel free to tweet along uh, with hashtag Conway Hall if that's your sort of thing. As well as normal, fire exits. So the fire exits for most of you will be behind you and to the center or to uh, the front over here. And for the <laughs> gentleman in the back, I think your closest is straight to the back. Um, and the meeting place, if there is a fire alarm, is at the uh, bust of Bertrand Russell in the park outside. So before handing over to the chair for this evening, Laurie Taylor, and the speaker for this evening, Lisa Jardine, I would just like to say a few words about the Conway Memorial Lectures for those of you who may not know. Uh, so before this building was built, uh, the members of the then South Place Ethical Society met at South Place Chapel in Finsbury Square. After the passing of Moncure Conway in 1907, several of his friends and admirers met and decided that the annual lecture in his honour should be established. The general objective of these lectures was the furtherance, in, furtherance of the cause of social, political and religious freedom, uh, which were always closely associated with him. The lectures continued here uh, when Conway Hall was finished. So for those of you who don't know who Moncure Conway is, he was born in Virginia in 1832. He studied law at Dickinson College and eventually became a Methodist minister. Uh, however, in 1856, uh, he turned against the idea of the Trinity and became a Unitarian minister uh, in Cincinnati, Ohio. Famously, though, in 1861, uh, as he was an abolitionist, he helped his father's slaves to freedom by escorting them through Maryland to the safety of Ohio just as his brothers were fighting for the Confederate Army. Little bit of family tension, I imagine. Uh, in 1863, Conway emigrated to London, and in 1864 became the minister for then South Place Chapel. So for the next 22 years, he led the congregation at South Place Chapel towards the ideas of free thought and humanism. He then returned to the States, wrote the biography of Thomas Paine, reconciled himself with his family, uh, and then eventually came back here as well and led the then South Place Ethical Society uh, and their members towards non-religious understanding of the world until his death. So the annual lecture bearing Conway's name has had, had its inaugural session in 1910 and has seen some remarkable lectures in its 104-year history. Bertrand Russell in 1922 spoke on free thought and official propaganda. Leonard Huxley and Julian Huxley, father, of brother, father and brother of Aldous Huxley, gave lectures respectively in 1926 and 1930. Uh, Marjorie Bowen on the ethics of thought, the ethics of modern art in 1939, and Baroness Mary Stocks on youth in an affluent society in 1960. Of course, the subject of tonight's lecture, Jake Bernofsky gave his own Conway Memorial Lecture titled The Fulfillment of Man in 1954. So if you're interested in any more history, we're welcome to visit our library and archives or become a member if you're not one already. And so on that note, uh, please join me and give me a huge round of, give a huge round of applause uh, for our chair for tonight's uh, lecture, Laurie Taylor. Well, thank you very much. Um, a, a very odd, really. I don't know uh, what's, uh, what's happened, really, because I seem as, um, as I get older and older, I get invited more and more not to speak, but to chair. <laughs> I tried to work out why. I wonder if it was perhaps because I'm invited to chair now because I'm known as a person 
who doesn't seem to have any strong opinions any longer. This is what Michael Frayn used to say was the mark of the ineffectual liberal. Anyway, so I mean, they don't really ask people with strong opinions to chair, do they? I mean, you can't see George Galloway, for example, chairing, can you? Anyway, but I'm delighted tonight. Um, so it's a real treat tonight. I mean, many of these chairing sessions, you know, you're sitting there between warring parties. And so uh, there are so many reasons to be cheerful for being here tonight. Not only am I sitting between warring parties, but I'm also introducing a talk which I'm just so, I, I, I'm so much anticipating it. As soon as I heard about it, I thought, I must go there, and then I received an invitation to chair. So <laughs> sometimes things are delightful, aren't they? Um, I, I'm fascinated by the idea, really, the reasons for my fascination with this. I think for all of us, for all of us, the activity of remembering a parent is an extraordinary activity, isn't it? You know, when you actually try to manage to remember your father. I was talking to Michael Frayn recently about the book that he wrote about his father and his attempt to understand and get back to his father. The things that we remember. I mean, I just remember occasionally, now I'm older, do you find this? You're, you, you find yourself making gestures which you suddenly realise were your father's gestures. Or even, ha, ha, laughing in a way. Oh, God, that's what my father laughed. It can't be genes. What am I doing? Why is it in my old age I'm suddenly assuming the characteristics of my elderly father? Or the emotional elements of your father. My, I find myself singing Galway Bay. My father sang Galway Bay all the time. Um, also, his, I remember his scientific atheism, you know, which never really amounted... I never really understood it, never knew about it. All I knew was that he, my mother was a practising Catholic and all my father did was to refer to her religion as your mother's muck. And that phrase, <laughs> that phrase always stuck with me. But from what I remember about Lisa's father and from what I know about her, the inheritance that she's going to be talking about tonight is much richer. I mean, I just referred briefly to my sort of sense of my father's atheism, my sense of my father's scientism. But of course, I mean, in a way, when you actually examine and look at the life and the thought uh, of Jacob Bronowski and of Lisa Jardine, you find these peculiar, well not peculiar, you find these extraordinary convergences. Sholto Burns in The Guardian plucked two statements. Here are the two statements. One, I grew up to be indifferent to the distinction between literature and science, which in my teens was simply two languages for experience that I learned together. Or, I have never understood the difference between the arts and the sciences or felt the need to choose between them. Well, the first one was by the father and the second by the daughter. But there are no pigeonholes here. I can remember once uh, asking Lisa about where, why was it that she somehow seemed to be able to range so freely and widely across the arts and across the sciences? And she said to me at the time that she said women actually learn to do lots and lots of different things at the same time, she said, and uh, perhaps it comes from that. I also... The other element that I'm interested in hearing about is uh, their shared rationalism. I mean, when you say that 60 years ago her father was standing on this stage and talking to this group of people, the people in this room who are informed by very similar philosophical uh, predilections. It is it's an extraordinary moment, this. Of course, we've got to add in as well, we're talking about what they shared, talking about their, the symmetry between their two the other thing that they share is this extraordinary communicative capacity. It's not just, I mean, in their, in their books, in their writings, in Lisa, I think I've written about 17 books by now, but her capacity, if you read any of those books, for evoking time and place and circumstance and making science sing through her imagery. And those of you who remember the series, 
the ascent of man, will remember that what was so wonderful about it, I always thought, was the way that her father had a mind that composed imagery and then found the words to put it into. And remember, he wasn't speaking in his native language either. It was an extraordinary English that he managed to produce, those images which he managed to provide. So, also, and the last little thing before I just get out of the way and, uh, and listen to the talk that I so much want to hear, the sort of complementarity of mood. I didn't know Jacob Bronowski, but I could sense the optimism he felt about rationalism, the optimism he felt about knowledge, and that optimism about knowledge and about progress, not some blind, absurd progress, not some utopian, not some Panglossian best of all possible worlds progress, but a careful belief in the ways in which her father's belief that knowledge is our destiny, straightforward statement from him, and her optimistic belief, which is so often expressed in the manner in which teaching, and the teaching she's done all her life, can lead humans to make independent and reasoned judgments. And once people can learn and can make independent and reasoned judgments, this is the precondition for them becoming truly moral. As I say, I'm looking forward so much to this lecture by the Professor of Renaissance Studies at UCL, Lisa Jardine. Good evening. I was um, gesturing at Laurie because he was about to do what the Provost of um, uh, UC University College London did on my, the night of my inaugural, which was deftly to pick up my lecture along with his notes. So I got to the lecture, I got to the podium and there was no lecture. Um, and the new provost of UCL endeared himself to me enormously. It was the first time that I had met him um, because I said rather pointedly, someone seems to have taken my lecture. And he got up very slowly from the front row and said, I was just making a few corrections. <laughs> It's a great honour to be doing this lecture tonight, and of course it's a particular honour because it is ex well, 60 years and a month since my father delivered the same lecture here, um, and just in case you're wondering, I was nine at the time, right? so I can't say I knew he was off to give the Conway Memorial Lecture. Um, but you will see, I'm not going to do too much introduction because I think you will see as the lecture goes on, I think it's perfectly suited to this occasion. It's work in progress. Um, the lecture uh, is part of a book-length project that I'm involved in, which is proving much harder to write than I expected, or as hard to write as I expected, for the reason that Laurie himself suggested, um, which is that it's about my own father. Um, and the book is called Jacob Bronowski, Things I Never Knew About My Father. Um, it's ever so hard to write about your own family. Um, this isn't an audience to whom I have to introduce Jacob Bronowski, uh, but this um, is the cover of the original um, uh, edition of the Ascent of Man printed edition that went with the 13-part television series that was televised uh, in, 70, in 1970 
three for the first time, and little did he know that he would die in 74 at the age of 66. Um, so, uh, but um, of course there was a great deal more to Jacob Bronowski, but this was the culmination of a career of communicating difficult ideas in um, an absolutely accessible uh, manner, and um, I will punctuate this lecture inevitably with reminiscences, and one is that um, what my father taught me and said to me on numerous occasions was, there is nothing too difficult to communicate to a general audience as long as they don't know it's difficult. <laughs> and I just think that is... So that was the ascent of man. Um, and um, uh, it was the culmination of a career uh, in public life, of being a public intellectual, but it wasn't the life he wished for, for himself. Now, you may say it was good enough. Um, it, you know, was he complaining? No, he wasn't complaining. But what I'm going to uncover tonight um, is I'm going to tell you something about the life he would have wished to have led, and I'm also going to uncover, uncover to you, as I discovered myself, how come he couldn't have that life. And the reason that I f have no compunction about talking about my father um, in the way that I do in things I never knew about my father is that because he became a very prominent figure, because he was a household name, because many people under 40 in this room um, uh, will have very strong, very vivid memories of the difference that he made to their lives even though they never met him, He's a wonderful vehicle for the story that I will tell you, which is the story of um, very many women and men in the post-war years and the things they believed they could do and would be able to do and were not able to do and they're not understanding or knowing, this is all very cryptic, but I will explain it, why life was letting them down and I will explain to you what happened through my father's example. He is, for this story, the everyman of the immigrant in the war years and the post-war years at World War II, and um, he stands for both himself and many, many thousands more. So this is a picture, a obviously studied picture. In fact, I think it was a BBC um, commissioned picture uh, for the Ascent of Man, um, uh, another of his books on the table there. In spring 2011, I received a phone call from the National Archives at Kew to give me advance warning that they were about to release two MI5 files concerning my father, files of whose existence I was totally unaware and which I'm almost certain he too had absolutely no knowledge of. The National Archives kindly offered me advance access to the files, or rather access to them at the same time as the press a few days ahead of release, and naturally I took up their offer. And these were two big folio files of rough paper about that high. Handling archival documents is a large part of my day-to-day -day life and my professional activities. Searching, I do archival research on the 16th and 17th century. That's my metier. That's what I do. 
Handling archives plays a large part in my professional activities, searching within them for clues to the historical account and teasing out from them the narrative threads linking the past to the present and the future. But the documents I'm used to consulting are from history, from the 16th and 17th centuries. They're precious, they're delicate, they're fragile. Damaged by the passage of time, faded and fragile, they have to be handled with extreme care, each turn of a page threatening to tear the paper or even have it crumble into dust. I have touched documents, the edges of which, thank God not the main paper, has actually disintegrated into dust when handled, when it hasn't been handled um, uh, for many years before. Um, as sparse relics of the documentary record, the scholar is resigned to the fact that she will, ne she will always, that the to her the documents will only yield fragments of truth. They'll shed limited light on early modern events and outcomes. Filling in the gaps of the paper trail is bound to be a painstaking and complicated matter of in-depth understanding of the period supported by educated inference. And I was foolish enough once to say to a reporter when they said, have you ever thought of writing fiction? as a historian, but that's what we do, we write fiction. You know. We fill in the bits. I'd never seen an MI5 file until I sat down to examine my father's. Here was quite another kind of collection of paper records from the ones I'm used to. The file in front of me, and actually since the beginning, um, uh, after the, the, the beginning, um, I've been confronting them miraculously in digital form, so it's a virtual engagement with them. You have to see the real thing, but you, but you can, can consult them, which means you, know, you can consult them in the middle of the night or on your holidays, and believe me, you do, if you're me, certainly. The files in front of me consist of two thick folders marked in blue crayon on the front KV2-3523 and KV2-3524 in large and very ugly letters in a firm, bold hand. And then the, the folder is stuffed, the two folders are stuffed with ill-assorted pieces of paper, some originals, some hand or typewritten, some signed notices that an individual page has been withheld entirely or partially retyped because of its sensitivity. And then there are sort of crumbling um, cuttings from newspapers pasted in with that old fashioned paste that burns through. So you get sort of brown lines down the, the cutting. 20th century documents are way outside my period, as historians always say, and expertise. On the face of it, they promise a good deal more in the way of solid information on which to base a historical narrative account. But much of the point of this lecture is, it turns out they are as incomplete, as opaque, and above all, as unreliable a source of evidence as any early modern fragments, nor are the stories we can reconstruct from them any more secure. And I kind of want you to hold on to that idea of unreliability, because an MI5 file, and I, I kind of want you to be part of the argument, so I'm getting a little bit ahead, there are two unreliabilities. There's the unreliability, which is simply the dealing with the documents, simply the putting them in order, trying to figure out what goes on between the documents, trying to answer what the unspoken question is to which a letter provides an answer, trying to put the missing pieces back. 
but an MI5 file is like an NSA file or a an MI5 file today, is unreliable because the evidence is never tested against reality. It's something that became very clear um, when the um, uh, Berlin Wall came down and the Stasi files were revealed from East to East Germany. Files of secret evidence against people, the reliability is never checked. And I'm sure you can see that that is a very important aspect of a security file. It means that the person on whom this file is held um, never has a chance to challenge what's in it. This lecture is my attempt to make sense of the content of file KV23523, which is the first of my father's MI5 files, and it runs up to 1956. A bit annoying because I would, I'd come to this later, especially looked for this lecture at evidence from 19, for evidence from 1954, which is the year that my father, who I called Bruno, like his friends, um, uh, we children decided that we would call him Bruno too. We called my mother Mummy and we called my father Bruno. Um, and I will slip in, I know, to calling him Bruno in the lecture, but that's... Um, uh, so... Um, uh, I was looking for material from 1954, but 1954 is kind of on the, on the crossover for, between the two volumes. However, I will come back to that at the end. The lecture is my attempt to make sense of the contents of the first volume of Jacob Bronowski's MI5 file in the context of my father's life as it can be documented from other sources that I had known about before. I've tried to use my skills as an historian, borrowed from my more usual early modern context, and I've tried to learn a new set of skills based on repeated scrutiny and freshly acquired insights into how these bits of testimony work, based on the 20th century documents under my hand and eye. And I should acknowledge that Peter Hennessy, who was my colleague at Queen Mary before I moved to um, University College two years ago, um, has been an absolutely invaluable help on um, uh, my mastering the skills of handling um, uh, what are called contemporary historical documents. The other crucial source on which I've built the story that follows is my father's private appointment diaries. Um, on first reading, they don't seem particularly promising. They record cryptically in minute, near illegible writing. Unfamiliar proper names are particularly difficult even for me to decipher. They record public events or the death of famous figures from literature and politics. But on closer study and by matching these apparently opaque information light entries against items in the MI5 file, supported by details of contemporary events gleaned from work of historians of the period, the diary entries come to life in an extraordinary compelling way. And um, the diary, this diary is that big. So that's why I say they're quite hard to read. I was gonna bring one and I actually then felt queasy about taking it out of the house. So, um, uh, and if you look at, um, uh, uh, this one, I mean, it's absolutely... Okay, now, I'm now going to turn away from the mic, and I'm going to try and keep the mic and do it here. So, can you see? Um, saw René Claire's Chapeau de Paille again. Mary Reeves, close family friend. Um, to hear... I knew if I didn't... Uh, um, uh, um, something of Ennui's Antigone. 
see Vivian Lee, sort of, those at Tennessee Williams Street Care named Desire, but I actually put this in because you see at the bottom, um, uh, Carl Fuchs sentenced to 14 years at the bottom. What fabulous um, cross-section of, um, I promise you, I could, you've got lunch, Herbert Reed there, um, and then um, I have one further one. Um, these are both from 1950. I was trying to get close to the lecture time here. Um, uh, and this one I put in, because look at the bottom. Alga Hiss found guilty, death of George Orwell. Um, and uh, at the top, second coal board interview, he became um, head of research at the coal board in 51. And that, so, so the diaries, now the diaries ha, are still in my family's possession. The archive is now at Jesus College, Cambridge, thanks to a very generous um, gift by uh, Daniel and Joanna Rose from New York, who were friends of my parents, and uh, it, it's in a, a purpose-built, indeed we have, we have, Marianne, I'm sure, we have the archivist in the audience, second to back row. I won't embarrass you by making you stand up, um, but the, uh, the archive is being catalogued at this moment. The diaries are still in my possession, um, but I will give them to the archive as soon as I have finished this book, I promise. And lots of other funny bits and pieces. And then, of course, there's a specially privileged position in which I find myself as my subject's eldest daughter. We were four daughters. Necessarily, I have information about events in the past relating to my subject that nobody else or nobody beyond the family has knowledge of, or I can corroborate events, or I can um, uh, um, make sense of things that other people can't because they're not documented. I'll give you one swift example, because I know I'm going to run out of time otherwise. Um, um, gentleman contacted me to ask whether my father really had been such a good friend of Leo Zillard. He says in The Ascent of Man, my old friend Leo Zillard, and this gentleman said he could only track uh, references and my father's contact um, with Leo Zillard to 1962 when the two of them were founder fellows of the Salk Institute in California. Um, well, first of all, um, uh, that was silly because Trudy and Leo Zillard were in and out of our house you know, of course they knew, you know, it's that, it, there was a kind of a, of course, which just was they were, they were familiar, when we were children, they were familiar family friends. Then my autograph book, from when I was nine, 54, um, has Leo Zillard's autograph in it. Um, and I think that we have one other reference. That, you know, so that's where you can build up the picture. However, right, um, it carries its own pitfalls, since I now know on the basis of this particular exercise that my memories, which I'm sure are accurate, differ significantly from those of, my, of others in my family. Right? You all know that. You all know that your vivid recollection is your sister or brothers or mother or uncles uh, denied reality or truth. Didn't happen. Wasn't like that. You weren't there, right? Um, you weren't there is a particularly good one. Without the, because it's generally true, the thing you remember so vividly, you actually weren't there. You just heard other people talk about it. Without the last two, the, the diaries and the, the family memories, um, 
the analysis of the MI5 file alone would have been much more difficult. And yet what the file has to tell us is of much wider inherent interest than mere family history. The process of surveillance that emerged at the end of the Second World War and the start of the Cold War had profound effects on many lives similar to my father's, particularly in the scientific community and especially those fleeing Nazi Europe, or like my father who had fled the pogroms in the 1900s but remained enemy aliens as far as um, MI5 was concerned. As we now become aware of the new styles of all-pervasive surveillance that modern democracies feel obliged to employ, we need to understand more about the consequences for ordinary citizens of such covert evidence gathering and the decisions based upon it, of which the individual may have no knowledge and against which they have no redress and whose inaccuracies they will never know about and can never challenge. Right? And I mean that, you know, if you, that's the moral of this lecture. Brit the British, unlike the Americans, are weirdly blasé about Snowden's revelations. And I've heard so many people say to me, oh, I think they probably need to watch all these people and I'm all right because, you know, I know I haven't done anything wrong. You may not have, but MI5 may think you have, right? And your whole life will then be lived under a, um, under a color, that there will be a color and an interpretation put on your whole life and it will affect your life, believe me. Now, I've taken that all much too slowly and I will now gallop a little bit so you can get the whole story. Let's begin almost at the beginning of Jacob Bronowski's MI5 file. On the 22nd of May, 1940, Professor W.E. Collinson, Professor of German at the University of Leeds, sent a note to a colleague at MI5, um, Sir Gon Sinclair, Pilcher. That's one of those names that is spelt not like, you know, I, I'm making that up, but I'm sure that Sinclair is, you know, of course, spelt St. Clair. Um, and, um, and the reason, now let's just make sure I, I will just get ahead so that you can see what I mean. That's, in, that's Sinclair Pilcher. Can you, it's a little bit bright, that one, but they, some of the others will be darker, and I will um, uh, help you with it. Um, he'd received, so, he, Collinson, professor of German at the University of Leeds, sent a note to Sagon Sinclair Pilcher. He'd received a tip-off from a casual informant, is how he puts it, concerning a certain Mr. J. Bronowski, lecturer in mathematics at the University of Hull. A colleague of mine in the NID, the Naval Intelligence Division, who knows the conditions at University College Hull, suggests that the attention of your department should be drawn to the activities of Mr. J. Bronowski of the above address, that's Hull University. Bronowski is a naturalized British subject, a skillful speaker and agitator of the communist intellectual type, a disseminator of seditious doctrines, both within the college and in the East Riding where he lectures. All his skillful obstructionist activities are, to the knowledge of my colleague, a source of vital danger to our war effort, and this man should therefore be closely watched. May 1940. That's what my father looked like. Right, that's actually 37, it's his wedding, on his wedding day. Um, obviously a communist skillful agitator. Right? Um, uh, 
I knew from my father that he shaved that beard off in 1939 because he was sick and tired of being stopped by the Hull police, as obviously a suspicious character. Remember, that's Pilcher. <laughs> now that's a disquieting document for me to find at the very beginning of this archive. It carries the authority of both the writer and the recipient status. The note paper is embossed with a crest and the address of the Home Office Advisory. Let me just show you that. Sorry. See all that at the top, all that authority? I prefer the picture of Bruno. Um, six Burlington Gardens. London W1. Sagan Sinclair Pilcher was a senior lawyer and an MI5 official. He became a judge in 1942. The next document in the file shows that Pilcher forwarded Collinson's letter and notice of Bronowski's dubious activities for further urgent investigation by MI5 with a brief handwritten covering note. He did it the very next day. There's Pilcher. Pilcher to Collinson. Very many thanks. I'm passing it on to the section which deals with communists. He may already be a friend of theirs. Yuck, you know? He may already be a friend of theirs. He's a lecturer in mathematics at Hull. He's stony broke, right? He's um, recently married, you know. Um, he may already be known to them. We should note that this piece of, of correspondence dates from the very month in which the so-called phony war began. No, when the phony war, 40, became, when following Britain and France's declaration of war on Germany in September 1939, um, the Second World War proper began in 1940, in May 1940. Winston Churchill replaced Chamberlain as Prime Minister on the 10th of May 1940. And it's easy, it turns out, this is a little bit of my own sleuthing, to see why Professor Collinson should have been keen to demonstrate how assiduous he could be in following up leads concerning possible threats to national security. The Home Office Advisory Committee office, from which he wrote, had been set up in September 1939 to vet and in turn German enemy aliens during the period of the phony war. And there's a really good book about this, another of those dirty bits of British history we don't hear much about. It's a book by, Simpson that I, by a man called Simpson that I recommend called In the Highest Degree Odious, and it's about the disgraceful behavior of rounding up Germans who'd lived, you know, all of their life, been born into German parents in Britain and interning them or interrogating them and interning them even before war had actually broken out. Although his office was primarily concerned with interning those with extreme right-wing op opinions, potential Nazis, or German political affiliations, it could refer information received about other possible enemy aliens to the appropriate authorities, and that's what um, Collinson is doing. Now, by the end of April 1940, the, this is a bit of my own research, so I, I did learn, I am learning how to do research in the 20th century with their documents. <laughs> the Home Office Advisory Committee had heard between 70 and 80 cases, but it only interned 28 people, and the government was getting very impatient with it. MI5 was making no secret of the fact that they thought they were far too liberal and reluctant to intern. 
So in May 1940, Collinson's department was not being very successful in identifying right-wing German nationals. So drawing a potentially left-wing enemy alien to the attention of MI5 showed Collinson's desire to demonstrate commitment to his new job. He didn't return, he took the job up in the beginning of 1940, and he didn't return to the Leeds German department until 1946, although there is not, although there is not a single um, document that I could find on Collinson that even refers to those six years. There must be lots of other people like that who have these... Well, of course, everybody at Bletchley Park. But Bletchley Park was kind of a special... They, bits of their life that were never referred to. So Collinson, that bit of his life was never referred to. Collinson himself was a medievalist who'd studied in Germany, was a fluent German speaker, and had married a German wife. And he had sent his German wife to America at the, at the, the moment that war was declared. Um, and he, his wife and daughter, he'd sent to, to America, and he was extremely anxious to prove that he wasn't a right-wing German sympathizer. All of this I know, and I'm going to leave it, but you can ask me about it. In terms of archival evidence at the, at the end, I learned this from a knitting blog online. Don't you ever mock at online knitting. I'm an avid knitter, right? Knitting is my, one of my sports, and... Collinson's daughter put up a knitting pattern that was German in origin in America in which she complained that she had not been allowed to come back by her father the whole course of the war. She had been a teenage girl um, and her father was so worried about being identified as a German sympathizer that she hadn't been allowed back to go to university. She had a place at university. Anyway, sorry, now I've done it, haven't I? This old document, right? And I only discovered it because I put her name into my knitting blog for some reason. Um, I labour this point slightly because Collinson's interest in this damn letter that he'd received at second hand from his colleague in the NID proved particularly unfortunate since the file shows that this gentleman had sent the same letter warning about Bronowski's skillful obstructionist activities. The first one in 1939, he'd sent it to four or five people um, the single informant who'd apparently met him only once and we know nothing about him because his name is redacted from the MI5 file as released. Um, and one of the people he'd sent it to was Sir Vernon Kell himself, the head of MI5. And Sir Vernon Kell had chosen to dismiss it. Um, I, I'll, I'll move on from that. Um, Okay, will you trust me on this? Because I do want to, to move on. The schoolmaster sent it to Vernon Kell. Vernon Kell, the head of MI5, received a letter, the letter. And on March the 29th, 1940, head of May, remember, when re the real war starts, he'd asked the chief constable of Hull to investigate. The chief constable's re response was commendably factual and pragmatic. It ended... During the course of my inquiries, I'm led to believe that Bronowski is more pro-British than otherwise. I'm well acquainted with the members of the local Communist Party, and at no time have I ever known him to be associated with them. Kell responded on the 22nd of April, I'm interested to note that this man is not known to you and is not connected with communist activities. On the 20th of May, 1940, um, uh, Kell wrote, redacted, 
who wrote to you about this man was also the author of our own information. He's evidently telling the story to all the likely authorities and is not to be believed. Okay? And I'm precise here about the dates. We're talking May 1940. Everything happens in May. Because on the 10th of June 1940, Kell was fired the hell of MI5, the first thing that Ch Churchill did when he came into office, almost the first thing, was to fire the head of MI5 because he looked just like St. John Pilcher. Um, he was the old guard. He was really not up to what was going to be um, you know, Bletchley Park and, um, and wartime surveillance. Um, so Kell was sacked, at a, really sacked, un, summarily dismissed at exactly the moment when he had said that this man, Bronowski, was of no interest. Instead of which, the letter went on circulating. This is my father on the right, having shaved off his beard as a young lecturer in the common room of the new University of Hull, which was regarded as a hotbed of sedition, anyway. The head of MI5's brisk dismissal of the casual informant's letter would have been the end of the matter, I think, had not Professor Collinson of the Home Office Advisory Committee approached his opposite number at MI5 again a month later. Remember, Kell's gone. This time, the Hull police, pressed for a second time to investigate Bronowski, and now the war is underway, were more thorough. In addition to putting together a detailed account of his career and activities as far as they were known to him, to them, members of the police source were assigned to the various public meetings he spoke on or attended in the months that followed. They noted that he, shock horror, played chess for the university, lectured for the WEA, and was extremely active in the Hull Literary and Dramatic organizations. In October 1940, PC 186, Alfred Foster, attended two meetings at which Jacob Bronowski was billed to speak. One a meeting of the People's Theatre Guild, the other a meeting of the Left Book Club. PC 214, Arthur Salvage, attended two meetings of the Hull Sunday Association. Foster's long account of his undercover attendance. Can you imagine? He was wearing those big boots. Do you, can you imagine how undercover he was? When I was a radical student at the University of Essex and the student and the local police infiltrated our meetings, you could always tell by the boots. <laughs> Foster's long account of his attendance at the People's Theatre Guild, which is all in the file, neatly typed up on police notepaper, is frankly risible. It would be risible if it hadn't had such effect. Here's a taste of it, and my husband always warns me not to put on a PC plod voice to do this, but it comes out that way anyway. Dr. Bronowski then gave a reading of one of his own poems, How I Hate War, the poem which I could not hear very clearly from my position at the back, seemed to refer to the emotions of the Côte d'Azur, now deprived of the diplomats and public figures who used to adore her. I tried to, <laughs> I tried to estimate the effect of this activity would approve. Sorry, 
I tried to estimate, I'm getting the PC plod voice, sorry. I tried to estimate the effect that this activity would produce upon the ordinary listener and felt that if propaganda of this type were produced up and down the country, even before small audiences, it might do much more harm than any form of subversion yet invented by the Communist Party. <laughs> In a further supporting report, 26th of January 1941, P.C. Foster writes, on no evidence whatsoever, that although the previous investigation had cleared Bronowski of communist sympathies, quote, it has now been found that Jacob Bronowski has been associating with communists. Bronowski has also been noticed to be a strong supporter of the People's Convention and the People's Theatre Guild. At the last meeting of the Guild on Sunday the 19th instant, he read an extremely pacifist poem of his own authorship and was plainly in sympathy with the general aims of the meeting, which endeavoured to deride the government and create a frame of mind likely to obstruct the national war effort. I therefore respectfully submit the opinion that Bronowski is a communist in everything but name. We might contrast the report of Bronowski's contribution to the Left Book Club meeting in a cutting from the Hull Daily Mail, which is also pasted into the file. Quote, in the interval, Dr. Bronowski gave an enlightening talk, mainly about the after, this is the newspaper, this is my newspaper voice. In the interval, Dr. Bronowski gave an enlightening talk, mainly about the after effects of the Spanish War and the alarming growth of fascism, which, quote, must be stopped at all costs before it spreads still further. Dr. Bronowski also emphasized the need for, quote, getting together and talking things over to give everybody a fair say in affairs, and most of all, to have justice and peace for all. Still, this time, the police reports were apparently taken perfectly seriously, and although Dr. Bronowski's name did not at this point go onto the Home Office's official warning list, it was subsequently formally recorded that he should be, quote, debarred from any confidential work. I ought just to say briefly here that I'm well aware that Jacob Bronowski did hold left-wing views, did consort with, with um, communists. Indeed, both his mother and his sister were active Communist Party members in London of the old school. They had come in as immigrants. Um, they also knew that Russia was the only, uh, the, that was currently the only um, country supporting Jews. You know, it was, um, so there was a connection. Several of his colleagues from those Hull years also believed he held communist views. I'm affirming that contrary to the accumulated paperwork in his file, my father never belonged to the Communist Party. There are good reasons that I won't go into here for my knowing it, because um, one of which was that he told me under no circumstances to join because his sister's life had been ruined by it. He was a passionate supporter of his adoptive country, which had taken him in at the age of 12, when he and his parents were forced out of first Poland and then Sudetenland, and worked, he walked, worked tirelessly for the Allied war effort, um, which is another, another lecture. Two years later, in 1942, in the middle of the Second World War, the Ministry of Home Security Research and Experiment Department, codenamed RE8, <coughs> wrote to the Home Office asking for clearance to appoint my father, who'd been recommended by a senior scientist there, to a post in the operational research team in RE8, located at Princess Risborough in Buckinghamshire. The request was forwarded to MI5. In the correspondence that followed, highly selected, misquoted, and inaccurate phrases were singled out from the documents I've just been discussing, and a firm view expressed by MI5 that this man was not suitable for secret war work. 
contacted once again, contacted once again about this suspicious foreigner in connection with the Home Office's request for clearance. Hull Constabulary's Detective Constable Crepsworth wrote a further report on him on the 18th of August 1942, um, and I won't read it out because you've got the drift of it. Um, he did, however, say, have you got any academics in the audience? Anybody in academic? Well, um, two prominent members of staff at Hull had a field day and said he was a no good, pain in the neck, thought too much of himself and was definitely a communist. Um, MI, oh, okay. Um, and this is the testimony of the two prominent members of Hull. I only say, are there any academics in the, in, in the audience? There are members of my department who'd absolutely love it if MI5 came to them and said, do you think that Lisa Jardine has got communist tendencies? <laughs> oh, thank God, well, finally we can cut her down at the knees, you know. Um, however, however, in spite of MI5's extreme reluctance, and this time they produced swathes of evidence, including a whole file on his mother and his sister, uh, RE8 confirmed his uh, appointment in April 1943, as we were unable to find anyone else with the peculiar qualifications which Dr. Bronowski possesses, that is, mathematical qualifications, his, um, his work in what would subsequently be called game theory, which was um, vital to saturation bombing during the, um, the, during the war. Um, MI5 tried one more time to dissuade them, but on the 26th of May, the Home Office terminated the correspondence. We have looked at this case again. The matter has been referred to the highest authority. We've decided, subject to certain safeguards, to retain Dr. Bronowski in our employment. My father continued to work at RE8 for the rest of the war. The fascinating and contentious details of his work at RE8 before, between 1943 and 1945 will have to be the subject of another lecture, were partly explored by me before these files came to light in a television program I made called uh, My Father, the Bomb and Me, which with the, the joys of YouTube, you can actually watch on the internet in its entirety. What I want to do here is to give you a single striking example of the way in which the MI5 file dogged Bruno's career progress and how the certain safeguards put in place by his seniors in his working environment without his knowledge impacted directly on his scientific war work. Are you happy with me going on a bit? Yes. In autumn 1944, following the Normandy invasion, Brasky was promoted to head of the RE8 mathematical section and transferred to London to assist American preparations for their Japanese bombing campaign. He was particularly expert in the mathematical ana analysis of the effects of strategic bombing based on close study of aerial reconnaissance photographs and he was liaising with the joint target group in America who were doing the same job in America. His vital mathematical work had gradually propelled him into areas which carried high security risk for which he had not actually ever been given clearance. So you see, Coulson isn't the first one. 
But of course, since he'd been denied top-level security clearance, he was kept absolutely in the dark about crucial areas of bomb development, of which otherwise he might have been expected to have some knowledge, most notably the Manhattan Project, which would certainly have had an impact on his own thinking and work, developing statistically-based strategies for deploying large blast bombs. So he was working on blast bombs, very large conventional bombs. When I made that program, My Father, the Bomb and Me, my producer director was really quite mean to me and said I was shielding my father because I could find no evidence that he'd been involved in work on um, the atomic bomb. And he said it was highly implausible. This file shows that there was a, a, um, a, a firewall in, at RE8 between, because my father hadn't had that top clearance, um, and that in all probability, except that I think he had other routes, certainly through his work, he didn't. Um, he won't, and he was pretty mad about it, as you will see at a certain point. In June, July 1945, my father was sent to the United States under circumstances of great secrecy, and I only discovered he'd gone from the, the diaries. Um, it, it isn't other, otherwise in the private, public domain, although there are other documents which now corroborate it. I think it was his first trip to America. Um, he, went he went under circumstances of great secrecy, the war is still going on, no, the war has just finished, um, to advise on further intensification of conventional high explosive and incendiary bombing of Japan, so the European war has ended, with the Americans at the highest level. And he believes that he was advising them on using very large blast bombs to cripple the uh, um, Japanese railway system. He went to London to be briefed on the mission in early June and set off almost immediately arriving in Washington on June the 12th, June the 12th, 1945. Some of you will um, rec recognize the importance of these, the significance of the dates. He worked with a Japanese target group. Um, he went to a lot of parties. He liked parties. Um, and America was having more fun at this point than Britain was. That week, he attended several meetings of the joint target uh, group, and he then went on, uh, he went to Princeton, um, where he met up with Johnny von Neumann. Um, uh, then he went to New York. Uh, then he went to California, where he met Jersey Neyman, who's the man who founded the um, Berkeley Statistical Laboratory. Statistical Laboratory still thrives today, and they wrote a civilian paper together while he was there. So he arrived in California on the 13th of July, 1945. I'd just love to ask anyone, does anybody know what happened on the... Um, he arrived on the 13th of July. Does anybody here know what happened on the 15th of July? First atomic bomb, thank you. See, was set off in the desert under... To Is it the sixth? Thank you. Ah, that's right. Um, uh, it was thus that Bruno was in Berkeley on the 15th of July, 1945, the day before the Americans, on the, sorry, um, he's there on the 15th, 16th, so I don't think it spoils my story. Um, the day on which the Americans exploded the first atomic bomb successfully at White Sands Proving Grounds in New Mexico, a few hundred miles south of Los Alamos. There's no mention in his diary of his knowing any of this either before or immediately afterwards. He records simply that Jersey Naaman and his wife hosted a picnic on that day. 
It's hard to believe that his presence in Berkeley was an accident, that he knew nothing of this text, test or of the ensuing highly charged discussions concerning it and concerning the rights and wrongs of using it against Japan. Yet, not surprisingly, his diary continues to record only the discussions in which he's involved, concerned with game theory calculations of how best to incapacitate the Japanese railway network. On the 20th of July, Bruno completed the paper that he submitted to the Department of Home Security on his return to Britain. Um, and on that very day, a B-29 bomber dropped a so-called pumpkin bomb on Tokyo, which is a large conventional bomb, which my father was aware of and was in liaison, but what was, of course, actually a dry run for dropping the atomic bomb, the fat man bomb. I simply can't answer the question as to whether Bruno had discussed the pumpkin bomb during his Washington meetings or not, because, of course, nothing would have been written down. Nor will we ever know whether he discussed the atomic bomb with, say, his close friend, Johnny, John, see, the family called him Johnny von Neumann, John von Neumann, who was working at Los Alamos. He returned to London two days before the general election, which, re which returned Labour to power on the 26th of July. But the thing I can tell you as I swiftly move on is that Jersey Neyman's wife the man he had the picnic with, the man he wrote the paper with, turns up in those Russian files that were released um, uh, 10 years ago or so, and she was a KGB stringer. <laughs> it's exciting. In October, I'm leaving that, I'm leaving that floating. I really don't know what to make of it. In October 1945, Jacob Bronowski, now a wing commander in the Royal Air Force, was sent to Japan at the head of the joint, at the head of the joint UK-US mission to report on structural atomic bomb damage to Western-style buildings. And that's a great photograph of my, that's the only photo I've got of my father in military uniform. On a, um, that's a cooling tower after the bomb, in Nagasaki, after the bomb has been dropped. Um, he conducted this mission without top-level MI5 clearance, again designated the most suitably qualified person to lead the mission by, the, by RE8, the Ministry of Home Security. There's a great deal I could say about this trip, but again, that must wait for another occasion. It confirmed his lifelong, passionate op opposition to the use of the atomic bomb as a weapon of war and shaped his post-war scientific and intellectual person persona. And I have his letters to his, my mother that he wrote, which are in the Jesus Archive, or copies of them. Are the originals there? The originals are in the Jesus Archive. Um, I think I've lost a page, no? Okay, I'm switching, I've got, because I'm, I've added a bit and it's going to, right. That was my father during the war. That was the prominence of his position. All right, he didn't have clearance. All right, there were those letters in the MI5 files. All right, there was MI5 jumping up and down and, and stamping its pretty little foot. But some of you will know that that happened for a great many people. These people were used during the war. Leo Zillard. Um, General Groves was so sure that Leo Zillard, who was working on the Manhattan Project, was a spy, that he had Zillard tailed for the entire um, pro uh, war. And in fact, Leo Zillard used to go into his house in the evening and turn around and wave, because he knew there was somebody tailing him who was out there. And the day 
But, and so he was allowed to do all this work, he was allowed in there at the heart of everything, he was tailed everywhere. Fuchs was meanwhile, Klaus Fuchs in there, not being tailed, um, uh, and spying and giving everything to the British and the Russians. Um, the day after the war ended, General Groves personally sacked Leo Szilard. And that's the point I want to make to you now, and that's what I'm moving into as my, as my closing. These were the men and women who were used because of their exceptional skills during the war. They were the people who won the war for Britain. There was a lot of embarrassment about all these enemy aliens. And of course they were all Jews, um, because for them it mattered more than for anybody else that the war was won by the Allies. They were sent into dangerous situations because they could be relied on, um, almost like kamikaze pilots, that they would do anything to make sure of an Allied victory. Um, they would work on projects that involved immoral things that in ordinary life they would never have worked on, like the saturation bombing work that my father took part in. Um, but the day the war ended, they were dumped. And I really, they were dumped. And I tell you, and I look you straight in the eye and I don't use my script, German scientists who had worked with the Nazis during the war found it easier to get jobs in Britain and America after the war than the British and American Jews who had helped win the war for the Allies. Except they didn't know, right? So the Cold War and the 50s, the, la the late 40s and, and the 50s, MI5 ran our own Cold War, I mean, ran our own um, uh, McCarthyism. Except nobody was summoned, nobody stood in a court, nobody stood before a hearing and tried to protest their innocence. These people simply didn't know, right? They might suspect, or like my father, they might have a very close friend like C.P. Snow, who was on the inside, who, as I can show in another bit of the book, on several occasions desperately tried to alert my father to the, to the fact that there was a reason he wasn't getting jobs. This is 1947. This is the Ministry of Supply, the Ministry of... My father was in the Ministry of Works, that's where he'd been plonked after the war. He'd applied for a job in the Directorate of Atomic Energy. He was brilliantly, by this point, qualified. Um, he wanted to work on peacetime use of atomic energy. And this is the letter which says, it has been decided his services will not be utilized by the Directorate of Atomic Energy based on the MI5 file, which my father never saw. And he never knew why he didn't get that job. And my father told me as I was growing up that I must write three hefty, boring academic books before I went into public engagement because otherwise you were tarred with the brush of popularism and you wouldn't be taken seriously. That's why I've written all those hefty, boring books, right? Um, and it works, actually. But he did not know, he did not know that that was not why he was not getting these jobs. He could get television jobs, he could get, um, uh, you know, be the, the, the star of the Brains Trust, he could get television series, um, but he couldn't get a job of the kind he wanted. And in fact, in 47, he was pretty desperate to get a job. Um, and the job he got, 
and this organization can be very happy about it, Julian Huxley hired him at the newly founded UNESCO. Julian Huxley, if you look at UNESCO, hired everybody nobody else would hire. He went in as the first chief executive of UNESCO, and you just look at the early years of UNESCO. He hired everybody who couldn't get a job anywhere else. While I was preparing this lecture, which celebrates the fact that my father gave the Conway Memorial Lecture himself not 60 years ago, I looked through the two volumes of MI5 material for something I might be able to link to that occasion. Sadly, there was nothing specific. Indeed, there were no MI5 documents specifically for 1954 at all. But two documents I did find from the 1950s allow us, I think, more vividly to ponder what it might be like to be a person of strong and outspoken left-wing ideas who has no idea that they are under close surveillance. And both these examples are from 1955. And I'm going to look my dear friend Laurie in the eye and say, how brave would we be about saying the outrageous things we are prepared to say in the interests of peace and um, uh, integrity and rationality and left-wing beliefs if we knew that we were being vetted on a daily basis um, by surveillance um, organizations. I, I ask that as an open question. I don't think I would be brave enough. I'm just telling you. I think it would get to me. I think it would get under your skin. So what I'm just going to show you is what was going on when my father was being outspoken when he stood on this platform and undoubtedly, well, actually, I should have read the lecture, was being extremely out, um, uh, um, outspoken. So they're both from 1955, these two things. The first is part of a series of letters and notes in the file concerning some radio broadcasts my father had been invited to make by the BBC about peaceful use of atomic energy. I listened to these broadcasts when I was making a television, that pro television program um, with Chris Derlacher about my father's war, war work, my father, The Bomb and Me. I listened to these programs, and Chris Derlacher said they're in the BBC archive, but unaccountably they were never broadcast, which just seemed odd. This was all remembered before the files came to light. We didn't understand why they'd never been broadcast, and nor presumably did my father. Here is the page of his MI5 file. In the page of the MI5 file, we find that silent censorship was the culprit. This is a letter, I won't read it out, you can easily read bits of it. Um, uh, this is a letter saying, we hear he's giving these programs, you know, that he, the BBC, needs to talk to us. And there are four or five letters, and poor Miss Waddley um, gets caught in the crossfire, and the programs are pulled. The programs have been made, they're ready to air, they're in the Radio Times, and they never go out. And David Attenborough told me um, that when he was head of BBC Two, MI5 routinely in the 60s um, uh, interfered particularly around Panorama, and would phone him and say, this can't go out. And he said that he had, to his shame, to confess there was at least one program they pulled because MI5 didn't, wouldn't, said they had stuff on people in the program. The second, I think this is the one where I was bringing Laurie in. 
The second is a cutting from the Sunday Times of 1955 about scientific responsibility, so very much the voice of my father in those mid-1950s. It reports that, addressing a meeting of the Atomic Scientists Association on scientific responsibility, my father instanced Klaus Fuchs, spy extraordinaire of the Manhattan Project, at the heart of the Manhattan Project, as the only scientist fully and conscientiously to have taken responsibility as a scientist for the atomic bomb. It's not the only occasion on which my father said it. Um, it even... Um, by revealing its secrets to both Britain and the Russians, my father argued um, he was doing the responsible thing as a scientist, that if everybody knew the secrets of the atomic bomb, there couldn't be an, an arms race. And he wasn't the only person, I mean, lots of people believed that at that point. Had my father known the precariousness of his own position, I'm not sure he would have made that remark so provocatively so that it actually went into the public arena. I don't know, I don't, knowing him as well as I did, I'm not sure that that was his style. So those are the two documents I found. In C.P. Snow's novel, Corridors of Power, set in the 1950s and centered on the political tension surrounding whether or not Britain should have its own nuclear deterrent, the hero, senior civil servant Lewis Elliot, Snow's alter ego, is subjected to a security re-vetting. His interrogator does not bring his MI5 file with him. Quote, this quote from the novel, throughout the next three hours, this is Elliot, first-person narrative, um, describing this grueling vetting by this nasty little man in a raincoat from MI5. This is because the, the, um, uh, the, um, the, the British atomic bomb um, effort is, it, I, can't, I have not time to go into that, right. Um, uh, anyway, all of the senior civil servants involved are being re-vetted. Of course, they had security clearance already, but they're being re-vetted. At a certain point in the interview, and this is my point, the interrogator accuses Elliot of being a communist fellow traveler. And this is the exchange from the novel. He broke out sharply. But you yourself, you attended meetings of the left book club. Actually, he says there's a gap, you know, but we've got to make it read. But you yourself, you attended meetings of the left book club. He gave the title of what, not at the time, but later, we'd come to call a front organization. No, this is Elliot. Please think again. I tell you, no. This is very curious. In the angry exchange that follows, Elliot accuses MI5 of using evidence provided by a notoriously unreliable individual, and he warns him that trusting such sources could result in causing real harm to innocent individuals. Elliot, this one doesn't matter much to me, but there may be others which would do more harm to people who are more helpless. The official is visibly shaken. For the remainder of the interview, he's distracted and uncomfortable. If an item in the file is bogus, if some of the evidence provided by agents and informants is unreliable, might that not undermine the validity of the entire MI5 vetting process? My father never knew about his MI5 file, although at the back of his mind, I'm sure he suspected he had one. And we all joke about it, you know. 
It's not a joke. He was never given a, I mean, about our own, you know. He was never given a chance to confirm or deny any of his contents, most of which were false. Almost 40 years after his death, that thought continues to haunt me. Thank you very much. So much. Uh, there's, uh, there's so much there to, to talk about. I mean, can I just start off because it's interesting to know about your father's relationship with the BBC. Because you remember the BBC. I remember some years ago, and many people in this room will remember the Christmas tree episodes, because the BBC somebody discovered that they'd gone the files of the people who'd worked for the BBC. There were Christmas trees placed alongside certain people who were told not to broadcast again, and there was some danger in them broadcasting again. But there were brave people in the BBC who fought against this system. And I was just, before we came here, I didn't know what you were going to be talking about, but we mentioned that when the Wreath Lectures started, immediately after the war, the first Wreath Lecturer was Bertrand Russell, who was not much liked uh, in the country at all, uh, but given you know, a full spate to present his views on society and the way ahead. And I think there must have been, within the BBC, wars going on between, because there were quite a few uh, Eastern Europeans working in the BBC, Hungarians, who must have been very much aware of the predicament of people like your father. And I suspect that we, if we could see the documents, you know, the ways in which, you know, I mean, that there's broadcasts which don't go out, yeah. but then, of course, your father then is entrusted with a major uh, tele television yeah. series. Yeah. It's interesting. Do you know anything more about no, the I internal don't. conflict? No, I don't. And I'm... Um, the MI5 files are bad enough. BBC records. Mm. Uh, I couldn't imagine undertaking both the bulk but also the unreliability yes. of, those, of those records. I will tell you one other thing which lets you know that these things run on and on, which is that after my father died... Uh, the BBC set up a Bronowski lecture, um, which the first of which was given by um, uh, oh, Nick Humphrey, um, the distinguished biologist. And um, Nick gave it on the atomic bomb. And the then director of BBC Trust axed the lecture after Humphrey had given it. I was furious with Nick Humphrey because I, I was at that time, you know, I was 30-something and my father had just died and I, you know, he, to have sabotaged this whole lecture series by being clever clogs to give something seriously subversive because the BBC wasn't going to bet it before it went out, you know. Um, but, you know, it's so Hell good. has no fury like the BBC scorns, yeah. right? But, but you see, there were people like Louis McNeese and others yeah. who were around them who were uh, stopped from broadcasting. I understand yes. stopped from broadcasting yes. because of it. Um, okay, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I mustn't hog this because it was so fascinating. I'm sure there are many people who've got questions uh, uh, and points to contribute. To the debate. One of the things I really would like, but I'm not mad at question time, is if anybody, as always happens, has a 
has a story in their own life of, of you know, your father or your mother, or um, please do let me know, even if you don't do it now, email me on lisa.jarvis.ucl.ac.uk because it's really important for me doing my father to understand that he's not special. He's, you, know, you could get all wound up about this, but he's not special, right? Um, that's what's so awful is that he's not special um, and that surveillance is a really, you know, we have to fight surveillance. Um, it's not protecting us from terrorism. Surveillance is undermining democracy. You might ask, just to add in, I can't resist adding in the fact that Noam Chomsky has never been invited to give the, uh, the Reef lectures. You know, while we have to listen to sort of Grayson Perry, perfectly <laughs> nice person, you know, I mean, you know, it would, no, no, I'm trying. Anyway, off we go. So, sorry, anything from the audience? Uh, yes, uh, yes, in the third row here. Thank you. Um, I've been live tweeting your lecture. Absolutely fascinating. So, I've been asked on Twitter a question, and I apologise for not understanding the background to this, but I've been asked to com um, is there a comparison between your father's experience and somebody called Joseph Needham? Pop star now. Um, uh, Joseph Needham uh, is the author of the great history of Chinese science. Great, and he was um, master of uh, Keys College, Cambridge. Very good friend also of, of, of my father. Stop tweeting for a minute, because you've got to listen to the answer before you tweet the answer, right? <laughs> um, uh, Needham had the advantage of being a great eccentric. That's the other, that, so that's the point, right? Class or eccentricity, okay? Um, I don't think my father was quite eccentric enough. Um, if you were sort of, but a, a real eccentric, an intellectual eccentric, uh, could also, I think, get away with it. But there were lots of things that Joseph Needham didn't get in, in, his, in his life uh, as a result of his staunch adherence to communism. I think for those of you who are younger, the thing that we need to tell you is everybody who was worth their salt was a communist in the 30s. So these files, everybody has a file, because no self-respecting person in the rise of communism, in the rise of Nazism, was anything else, you know. Um, and, and even down to the 60s, when I was at Cambridge, it was something you, I mean, not being communist, because you weren't fool enough, because you wouldn't be able to get an American. Sorry? Yeah. So, you know, everybody had form as being left-wing, so you could pick and choose who you wanted to, um, to come down on. But the thing I, I'll keep you, I want to keep you focused on with the file, it's the file, it's those documents. Now, I think that's what C.P. Snow was trying to warn my father. And incidentally, if you haven't read the C.P. Snow novels, everybody, not everybody, literary critics are ridiculous and say they're not good novels. They were his way round the Official Secrets Act. If you read those novels, you, you will understand what was going on in England during the, the, cold, the war years and the Cold War. It's all in there. Um, uh, and as Snow, I think, tried to tell my father um, that there was things in his file. But do you see what I mean? They're, they're actually false. He had all these associations. He was one of those people. But the documents that keep being cited, and in my title, that ridiculous sentence is in three atomic energy letters, you know, when he doesn't get employed. Those ridiculous, I mean, if you've read that sentence, you'd think, 
they're having a laugh, you know. Um, so, they, all right. Joseph Needham was an eccentric and, and wrote, managed to rise above it, I think. Now you can tweet it. Thanks. All right, let's take another one. I suppose you could say homosexuality was also a way in which you could protect your communist sympathies from any sort of action by the I authorities. I can't go there. Can't go I there. know, I know you can't, but <laughs> Won't it wasn't go bad, there. it wasn't bad. Okay, let's try somebody else. Yes. I just wanted to pick up on uh, the point you made about redactions. And yeah. um, you mentioned, I think, as well, that one of the redactions, at least, was the name of the informant. And I just wanted to understand, as far as you know, when were those redactions made? Are these sort of, if you like, historic redactions that they... No. That, but this, no. is, this is current or recent decisions which presumably somebody in, in MI5 or the security service now is saying at 60 years removed, we're still holding that back. Yes. Um, and the file has whole pages that are held back. I mean, there are pages that have a stamp in the middle which says this this page withheld. And Chris Andrew, who is the historian of MI5, tells me that that's usually because there's a name on that page with a living relative um, and it, it might compromise or something. He says they're generally ridiculous, you know, those withholdings. But the redactions are made when the files are released. Um, and the, the redactions are made by MI5. I'm a, I'm a non-executive director of the National Archives, and so we receive those files, and they're not subject to the 50-year rule or whatever. Um, they just every now and again release a few when they feel like it. Um, but no one will tell you if you have a file there, and Chris Andrew, who signed the Official Secrets Act, is completely maddening, because he's seen all these files, and I'll say, you know, nod your head if there's a file on so-and-so, you know, and he won't even do that, you know, or scratch your nose if there's a file on so-and-so. And so people don't even know they've got a file. And then people who do have a file, like um, uh, Roderick Flood, um, has tried endlessly to get his father's file um, and can't get it, his, his father having been a notable left-winger. I'll uh, just take one more because we've run, it's now over nine o'clock. Yeah, I'm I really sorry. Lisa can stay I here and you can this, ask her one, Yeah, you can ask me questions. So I'll take, yes, I'll take two together. Can I take yours yeah. and then one over here? Thank you. I just wanted to uh, ask your opinion, um, the difference between the uh, secret services here in the UK and in the US specifically with reference to people like Richard Feynman. I mean, I remember uh, reading his book, uh, Surely You're Joking, Mr. Fein Feynman, and also um, Leo Marx's book, From Silk to Cyanide. Yeah, yeah. It, is there a difference between how the secret services yeah. deal with, uh, you know, in the US and the UK? We'll stay with that, because that's so specific, yes. Good. Do you want me to answer that? Yes, yes, please. Yes. Um, all right, well, um, I, I will do it via... A, an, an anecdote. Yes, they're quite different, right? I'll do it via an anecdote. Um, when my parents, my parents emigrated to America in 1962, the file is kept up to date until then, and my father was completely stunned by the easy life he had intellectually when he got to America. Um, when they'd been there a couple of years, um, my sister and I were walking her very beautiful Afghan hound on the beach, um, and we'd taken his lead off because we were on the beach, and we were, you know, elegant young British ladies and with our elegant Afghan hound. And the police roared up with reflective, you know, sunglasses. And they arrested us, right? And we were completely, completely shocked. Actually, they released me to go and tell my parents and they took Judith down, actually imprisoned her, strip searched her, all of that stuff. 
And we realized afterwards that as middle-class, highly educated Britons, we, it would never happen to you in Britain. That's going back to the thing about who does and doesn't get, get tailed or, or filed. Do you see what I mean? That class plays such a role in Britain that decisions keep being made by MI5 on the basis, like Anthony Blunt, oh, he wouldn't. Nice man like that. Went to public school, you know. Um, whereas in America, the cops couldn't give a damn where we came from. The dog didn't have a lead on, and that was an offense. I, I, I think that's it. Let's take this quick one from over here. Right. Was there somebody here? Yes. Yep. Sorry. I'm sorry. I guess, uh, are the files really completely one-sided, like would MI5 wouldn't go? It's like, well, let's talk to some people and ask them how he's just a nice bloke. No. No. They are so one-sided. And actually, it's interesting you say that, because I hadn't really thought of it like that. That's the problem, isn't it? You know, archivists or historians don't just listen to one side. And it is a one-sided conversation. Um, where the only, where presumably they didn't even bother to file anything that didn't support. It, the newspaper cuttings are the giveaway, because my father was in the news on a daily basis by the 50s and 60s, but there are only a few cuttings, and they're all the ones where he says something about Klaus Fuchs, you know. Um, there's nothing which says, I like small, cuddly animals, you know, <laughs> which he didn't, by the way. Yeah. Right, we'll have to... I am a small cuddly I was. <laughs> I'm, quite, I'm quite a small cuddly animal still, aren't I? I'm asking my husband. We'll have, to, uh, we'll have to stop there, but I think Lisa's going to be kind enough to hang around for a moment because we've got some, uh, some drinks outside. But I just want to say, I can remember there's a couple of lines from uh, Auden, I think it is, who said we're not suited to long perspectives. They link us to our losses. You know, we very much an argument that we live in the moment and we think about ways that we are concerned with contingencies and our immediate lives and what will happen tomorrow. But... One of the advantages, a huge advantages that we've had tonight, what we've been able to enjoy is not only really in a way the story, which is often implicit of a relationship between Lisa and her father, but also, as it were, to be reminded of, in fact, the strategies which have been used to reduce brave, noble, thoughtful, rather heroic people and have impinged upon their lives and made their lives always surrounded by doubt and uncertainty. In the way that your father had the was fortunate to the extent that he was adopted by the British public because they came to recognise his intellectual grasp of what was going on, to see him for what he was. But there must have been many other people who suffered and did not have that line of escape. And you've reminded us of all those, as well as bringing your father and your relationship with him vividly to life. Thank you very much. Thank you.